At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? Hello, hello, my beautiful friends. It's Isabella Lombikir, the world messenger, and I'm inviting you for another epic episode of Legacy Leader Show. I am beyond thrilled with today's guest that is someone that not only I admire, I have a chance to hear numerous times talking that is extremely knowledgeable, super smart, but also it's phenomenal mover and shaker. She's pushing envelope in areas where usually typically see men and she is making huge, huge strides. Today we have a chance to hear from Helen Holden Slotty, and she is someone that is not just being strategic advisor for large corporations, but she is also international speaker and experienced attorney where she is actually focusing on environmental um, uh, law and so much more. So without further um, ado, please let me introduce you to Helen. Helen, how are you? Welcome. Oh, just terrific, Isabella. Just thank you so much for having me here and for the work that you're doing, highlighting the voices you're highlighting and showing people people the difference that that they can make and how they can show up differently in the world and and we need those new narratives and and people like you that are bringing these ideas and and leadership forward is just a service to everyone so oh, really happy to be here so thank you so much you're welcome and you're so kind and, and I really appreciate you for finding busy, I mean, time in your busy schedule and even time off to really be with us today as recognizing how important it is. I mean, you also won some amazing awards and you're known as a fracking awesome attorney, which we'll depict in a moment. And, and, and I said fracking, guys, <laughs> so we'll know what that is. If you're not familiar, what is so important and obviously as a mover and shaker and as a phenomenal environmental attorney. Uh, You're not, not as typical attorney by all stretch and imagination. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I was just saying to a couple of friends, I was like, I have a chance to be around attorneys and definitely Helen is uh, not breaking the mold. So first of all, I want to kudos you for that. But before we depict how you got into law and all of that, do you mind just telling us a little bit about where did you grow up and uh, some of those things that were pivotal that shaped you, who you are, are today to tackle something that usually is extremely challenging, not only to get into, but to succeed. So yes, yeah, so I um, so I grew up here in, in New England, and I'm actually at our uh, family uh, summer home that uh, we're the fifth, my generation is the fifth generation, and there was a really strong emphasis in our family on education. And as the, and the thinking was no one could ever take your education away from you. You might lose money that could come and go, people come and go, but that your mm -hmm. education and how you thought about the world and how you experience, like what you brought to your experience was the most valuable thing. Mm -hmm. And so, so growing up with that here, education was just really, really important. And that's what led me to be a lawyer. And 
I just read voraciously and can you hear that? Yes, it's okay. We have some really love boy there, I think. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Hold on. It's, uh, it's my sister's dog. I'm really sorry. That's okay. No worries at all. And, and he can stay if you like. No problem at all. But somebody wanted to be in the show with us and that is perfectly <laughs> fine. <laughs> So yes, she, uh, I think she has COVID syndrome and if she, she could see her mother, but she wasn't right here, my sister, and she was having that anxiety that I think we're all feeling in these COVID times of being connected, being not connected and trying to find our way forward. Yes. So I was speaking briefly just about um, sort of my background. And so education was just really important. And that led me to be a lawyer. And, um, and so, and uh, so I originally started working at larger firms, representing larger corporations and doing real estate work and uh, conveyancing and the like, ended up moving to upstate New York and was general counsel to our family, my husband's family uh, retail business. And in around 2009, we heard fracking was coming to upstate New York. And I got interested just in learning about that. It sounded actually, my initial impression was, well, this is interesting. And so I learned a little bit about, about that, got involved in then uh, th this fracking uh, sort of working to, to ban fracking in the state of New York and now have moved back to this area where I grew up and am continuing, you know, as a lawyer. So it's been a, life is a circle. And so it's very, uh, to sort of be back where I, you know, I grew up here and to be back here and, and with my sister and, uh, you know, just sort of those things are, are important, like family and those connections that you make, I think, shape you at a very young age. You were spot on, and I love what you said about earlier about importance of education. For someone who survived a war and lost everything, there was the same upbringing that my mom and dad installed in us. And, and she was spot on every country, every situation you go to, there was more how you can talk, how you can communicate and what can you do and how can you quickly land on your feet and you're spot on. That is phenomenal foundation to have. But what I love about it is how you full circle came back and how do you actually truly genuinely care? It's not about just running successful family business and obviously now very successful private practice, but it is also how you care and then how do you make decisions that are positively or negatively impacting in larger community. So do you mind, Helen, for people that are not familiar with fracking, because I remember first time when I heard, I thought maybe it's misspelled. It's like, what the heck that means, you know, and whatnot. And then and so how is that fitting with geology, with the gas, with all the exploitation and with the land? So do you mind just say, we'll share a little bit why, why, why fracking is such a threat for environment and how you just uh, fully got in? Because you not only got an amazing Goldman Environment Prize, uh, which is green and noble, obviously for your legal work and, and for your being such a strategic contributor to community. Uh, what do we need to know and how to preserve our beautiful nature? So yeah, so fracking is short for hydraulic fracturing, which is 
unconventional gas drilling. So back in the day when there was lots of oil to be easily had, sometimes oil and gas would even bubble up to the surface and that would be coming from a pool. So it would be like taking, there would be, you know, rocks, but there would be formations that would dissolve and you would have a pool. So you would effectively, when they would drill for gas, it'd be like putting a straw into a milkshake and they would suck the gas or the oil out. And that was traditional oil and gas drilling. And we have done, we have exploited all of the easily accessible pools of oil and gas. And one of the things that happens is when a company owns an asset, they want to try to find, continue to extract value from that. I own something, I want to pull out as much value as I can. So there was a gentleman who had what were considered depleted oil fields in Texas. There was no traditional way to extract any more value out of that land, but he wasn't going to give up. And so he developed a technique where they could shatter solid rock using high volumes of water that had been made slick with all sorts of chemicals and using lots of equipment to generate very high pressure using sand or other items as propants. So they would blow, they, and they came up with this idea of not just taking the straw, but they could take the straw and bend it and go out into a rock formation. So fracking is when they take, where they target shale formation. And when they say shale, it, it is a solid piece of rock. And they drill down and they get to the target formation. They run the well bore out for a mile, two miles, three miles. Then they stage it. So they go all the way out to the end of the well bore and they'll pick a thousand feet or so and they'll block it off. They pump in a millions and millions of gallons of water into that rock until it explodes at very high pressure. It's like a bomb underground and they shatter the rock and they release molecules of gas from solid rock. Then, that, then what comes back up first is the water that's been mixed with these toxic chemicals and radioactive waste and everything that was miles down that we don't even know what it is, that comes up, they put that off to the side, that's called wastewater. They use that in certain places as to nourish agriculture. Mm. That's, that's considered like wastewater. They, they keep calling it water. It's not really necessarily water that yes. in any sense of the word, a lot of the water gets trapped underground. And then once that comes up, then there will be a flow. They, they do all these frack jobs, then the well, then they'll extract the gas. And the wells don't produce for a long period of time because they're not tapping again into this pool. They're, they're, so they have to go in and either drill out another. So from one well pad, they might send out six like spider webs or more. They'll go out miles and miles and then they have to refrack. And every one of these frack jobs requires industrial traffic. So they have to bring in generators and the equipment to generate that pressure. They have to bring in water trucks. They have to bring in chemical trucks. They have to bring in all the equipment. So it is a hugely 
highly heavy industrial process. And in many places, they're doing this next to schools, next to hospitals, next to residences, next to you know, environmental areas. And often they spend they when they, they have to build pipelines to connect to these wells sometimes because they need to have drilled to get the land to hold it under the terms of the lease, they won't have connected the pipeline to the well yet. So then they flare, they burn off all of the, the gas from the well. And so it's just tremendously inefficient. It is a tremendous, it, I was shocked when I heard about and learned what it was that that was really being sold as the best technology that we had available, like smashing rocks to get something to burn. I was like, that kind of sounds like a caveman. <laughs> like, that really doesn't sound like the future. Yes, in and 21st century and things that we know more now, how bad for environment it is, how much it's polluting the water, how much is toxic, why we have a, such a dramatic increase of cancer, right? Things that we don't as like. And it's some of the gas is radioactive and wow. it, it is sold as the, when it first came out, now there's a lot more information, although still not a lot because it's considered proprietary and trade secrets. But the, um, they would tell us, well, we comply with all the environmental laws. Well, what that really means, what they don't tell you is the oil and gas has wholesale exemptions from the environmental laws. So the environmental laws will say the following things are toxic and you can't do them and they'll list all the chemicals. And then they'll say, unless said chemicals are being used by the oil and gas industry, in which case they are not hazardous. And it's like, so they're not hazardous by definition, but it is not in fact that they are safe. Yes. And so they would say, well, we comply with the environmental laws. And it's like, well, complying with the law that you are exempt from is not the same as complying with the laws that everyone else has to comply with. And they would say, well, it would be too costly for us to have to comply with those laws. And ordinarily, if, if it is too costly, it, those costs are, they're not bearing those costs, but there are costs borne by people and communities. People yeah. whose houses are worth nothing because they don't have clean water. People whose houses are dramatically lowered in value because they're next to an industrial site. People don't, we have zoning to, to segregate these non-desirable land uses from where we live. And we're saying, and part of what we wound up doing in New York was saying that zoning laws did apply, that you couldn't just put this high impact industrial use anywhere you wanted without regard to underlying zoning. But that's very rare in most states. Zoning rules, local communities say about what are appropriate land uses in our community, just the way you can say you don't want a Walmart in your town and next to, you know, in your residential neighborhoods, the way you could say you didn't want a hotel in the middle of a residential zone, the way you could say you didn't want a car wash in the middle of a residential zone. It was like, can we say we don't want this hugely, hugely negative externality use in, in residential areas? And in many, many states, the rights of people to say no to that kind of development has been taken away through corporate lobbying. And it's, it's really outrageous. 
Oh my goodness, I'm so glad you are sharing so much detail and information because we all need to be educated. And even as a consultant that actually did consult in mining industry, provided trainings and whatnot, actually uh, learned so much way before, well, back in Europe about geology and mining and different types of exploitation. I saw also evidence what it does when you have underground versus above the ground exploitation, how small towns uh, where I grew up uh, close to a capital of uh, specifically right now Bosnia and Herzegovina was affected and underground waters and artificial lakes and how much increased not only um, the death rate of cancer from very young people as well as all these un un unusual things that start happening and 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 then I felt like oh my goodness you know it's just a small country and uh, people are doing better and, and greater things by preventing this. And then when I start expanding upon and seeing this happening, not only uh, in Australia, but also what's going on in Africa and other parts of the world, uh, the flags are raising. And then when I heard about I remember a few years back election and then obviously uh, different laws and bills to be passed for gorgeous, beautiful state of Colorado, when you're on the surface see these great pastures, right? And cows and and then agriculture and full speed um, bringing the crops uh, that, 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 were, that are needed were jeopardizing that lifestyle and, and safety for so many that you just explained and future communities or existing communities it was just so hard to see how little we still do know and how little we really look at, at the facts um, that are presented. So now it's uh, it really it's a it's the sort of thing that like I didn't know anything about it before fracking came to New York. I, like I had seen, you know, I had this generally favorable impression that it was something cool and neat and uh you know and, and was an opportunity and and how wonderful that it would be coming to our state and then it was like oh my gosh like this is like i can't believe this is like truly being presented as the best idea that we have it's like oh, we must have better ideas than this like there there yes. just have to be and there are but it was just like, oh my goodness. And, but they're able, they're very talking about, we comply with all environmental laws, like, like things just have, or it's cleaner burning. Well, is it cleaner? Like what's cleaner burning mean? And it's like, well, if we look at just one piece of the life cycle and we compare it to, you know, coal, it, this one thing is quote unquote cleaner. And it's like, but if you look at the whole life cycle, what is, what is that? And so you have to be very careful with, and I, I think that's where as a lawyer, I was like, well, yes, but yes, but, and there were so many yes, buts, and that it, it, I just had to get involved and, and figure out some sort of way to put my legal skills to to help with this situation because it it just seemed like it was going to be devastating not just in the short term in the long term and that it would preclude other avenues one of my sort of concepts about life is making choices that leave you with more options so if you have a if there's multiple choices what choice is going to leave you 
with the most flexibility and the, and the most options to be able to respond in the future. And an option that really limits and puts you in a box is if maybe that box is really shiny and nice and, and you want to be in it, but you got it like things change. So being in a box is very difficult. Fracking is a box. It precludes tourism. It precludes organic agriculture. It precludes farming. It pre like wholesale, you know, like nice farm. It precludes so many good things. And, and it locks you into, you have an infrastructure, you have the whole reason fracking happened was because this guy had an oil field that was depleted. And he was like, well, let me try to come up with a way to, to do something with this depleted asset. So you start this, like you're going down a path and, and they're not, it's not like a bridge and they're going to say in 20 years, we're done. Like it's, it's like a, cancer might be too strong a word. I don't think so. I'm not trying to be provocative or offend, but it's, it is embedded. It, it's like, you can't, it's like an invasive species. You can't, you can't get it out. Once you let it in, it's going to take root and it's going to spread and trying to, you can't, it's not like, oh, now I've changed my mind. I don't want to do it. Like there's no go. It is they would talk about it being a bridge. I'm like, it's an expressway with no exits. And like, you don't know where you're And you don't going. know where you're going. I was like, it could be probably <laughs> highway to hell, right? Exactly. So. I love it. And this is so beautiful. Why I also wanted to, not only that I heard you speak on many different subjects, uh, how well-rounded human you are, uh, but also how uh, well-thoughtful you are and then how you think about the legacy. And, and that's why I wanted to so badly to be on the Legacy Leader Show, because what are you doing right now? You are legacy-making you're making such a tremendous strides and, and, and pushing people to have a better decision-making to really, as you said, just because we know how to market and package something and, and it looks shiny and desirable and it's, and it's bringing and corralling all the other friends and partners and whatnot, it doesn't mean it's a good on long-term, it's not good for humanity. And ultimately, we don't even know what implications going to be centuries down the road and we have to make sure that we're doing this consciously. And that really calls for higher standards, that calls for amazing leadership, calls for, for, for someone who really has a guts to show up in question and also uh, um, puts the opposing uh, counsel in place like you did to really stop and prevent uh, further destruction and, and, and prevent environment in a ways you've been doing. So do you mind sharing um, what it had to go through uh, and just in general, what it takes these days to really be so powerfully uh, successful, but yet daring and able to accomplish because you're a woman with so that empowers so many women, including myself. But when I talk to you, just it's just so easy to relate to. You're like your power is so gentle, yet you have this amazing authority around you and about you, which I also wanted to really highlight for everybody watching and listening. How is possible? to have a dialogue and have a conversation and address very challenging topics and frankly win in the end uh, and not being forceful and, and not being um, creating, you know, another dynamic that we very often see uh, that it's very aggressive and uh, as a result, 
this is the options. This is what we have as alternatives. So please share a little bit about that. So yeah, it, it's been very interesting. I think it was very helpful, my education. So when I learned about this, I knew how, so the trouble that we faced in New York was that the big green groups were all getting money from the natural gas industry to fight coal. So they were at the time really not, didn't want to pick a fight with natural gas. The regulatory agency was charged with promoting the industry, not with regulating it. They didn't want to pick a fight. The business lawyers didn't want to pick a fight because they make money, you know, as this happens, the farmers all wanted it because our agricultural policies are so bad. And this is how cascading bad choices lead you to make further bet. It's like, well, just because we have bad agricultural policy is not a reason to have fracking. Like we should fix the agricultural problem. If the farmers are in trouble, let's help them. But it doesn't have to be with fracking. And so I was able to look at the situation and not, I was taught to question and that what something looks like is often not what it is. And so I, and I had enough sort of intuitive sense and I rely very much on my intuitive sense. It just, it didn't make sense to me. And it, it just, it, it just struck me as very wrong. And, but having the education I was able to inspire confidence in the people that I, I was able to both sort of figure out this idea that even though we had, we, there was a statute written by industry that said that local governments could not regulate the industry. And what everyone said was that meant local governments could do nothing. And when you approach, there's, certain ways of conceptualizing problems. And so when you conceptualize the problem as how do we regulate fracking, and there's a statute that says you cannot regulate fracking at the local government level, that could be game over. And that was, everyone was like game over. What we need to do is focus on the state and try to regulate at the state level. Maybe we can try to change some federal regulations, but everyone was talking about how do we regulate fracking? And I said, well, how do we ban fracking? How do we stop this? Oh, that was audacious. That was, we couldn't, we would lose our seat at the table. That was like, that was just terrible. And I had enough, I felt like I sort of think of it like I had a badge, like I had this lawyer badge. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it gave me some level of both my own sort of confidence that I had like a, a, a viewpoint here and just this idea of being confident in my own analysis, confident in my reaction to this, and confident in my feeling that, 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 that there had to be a way. And what I had learned working as a big firm lawyer was you don't tell clients no. I mean, so you do tell clients no. But the, when somebody's trying to get something done, if they're a big company, you help them figure out how to get it done. And you go this way and that way, and you figure it out. You don't just say no. And so I wasn't gonna just say, no, you know, there was nothing we could do, but it required, everyone said that I was, was wrong, everyone, and wow. that we could stop this. And I just, I, I really, I, I credit my, you know, my 
my mother and my grandmother and and just this idea that you could I could be right even though everyone said I was wrong and so it was somewhat disconcerting to you know run into so many uh walls of people telling me I couldn't do this. But when I went I, and so I was in a meeting and I'd had this idea that we could use local laws to prohibit land use of high impact industrial land use. And that was not regulating fracking. That was as an industry that was regulating land use. And again, just the way Walmart, the car wash, like this was no different. We should have that power. We had a constitutional power in New York for that. And I mentioned it at a very small meeting. And the people that I was with, it just energized them. And they were like, we have like, that's the first time someone has said we have hope and we can do something. And so this idea that I had, I think because it tapped in, it, it made sense, it empowered people. It was using their local government to enforce rights that made sense to them, like people, when you get involved in a real regulatory proceeding, it's complicated. You don't really know what the rules are and you say your piece and you lose and you're supposed to go home and feel like, well, I tried, but I lost. <laughs> but people got like I was, people got the idea like you can't have a Walmart in my backyard. You shouldn't be able to have a drilling rig in my backyard. And that made sense to people. And I would tell people like, we're not asking for something here. We're not trying to do something different than like that. We have a right to this. And when we have a right to this, like we will be polite. I'll even be funny, but like, we're, we're not asking, like, this isn't, we're not asking for them to give us something. We're telling them they can't take something from us. And people are, were willing to defend, like when it was presented, not as we, well, we, they have the right and we're going to try to take something from them, or we need them to give us something. When people saw it as this is my sovereignty, this is my community, this is where I live. This is about my children. This is about my children's children. This is about the future. They tapped into a sense of entitlement and empowerment that they did not have when the issue was presented as this regulatory question that it, it was a it was a way of of disempowering people to put them in this regulatory process and regulatory processes are designed to make permissible things that are impermissible that's the point of regulations. They were started by the railroads. The railroads would have, they were, they were coal powered. They would cause fires and they would burn down things along the tracks and they would get sued and they didn't want to keep getting sued. So they had regulations that made it permissible for the, for the railroads to cause this harm. And that was the point of it. And the whole idea was we'll have this structure and we will make permissible, we will put what would now be sort of greenwashing, like we're going to wash this up and make it look like it's okay because it's regulated. And, yes. it's like, well. yes. and I leverage that, you know, door for opportunity to maximize everything else. We want to push 
as our agenda. I just love how you took that complex, complex issue, turned it around, created it in a way not only that is understood, that is digestible, but that is so empowering for others. And as a result, changed the script and won. It made a, such a tremendous impact and outcome. And I have to just to say, just the, the, what you said, being in a situation when nobody believed in you, where nobody really stood up behind you, when everybody told you it's impossible, how much takes, and I've been a couple of times in these situations, uh, how much courage, how much perseverance, how much strength and self-belief and confidence takes to be the only one sometimes initially in those stages believing in yourself and still going with that, with that gut feeling and with that deep desire, at least to try. Just want to say for everybody watching and listening, this is how magic is happening. This is how people transform the world. And Helen is obviously one of them that contributed such a huge, huge impact. We have probably still guys on grasping the magnitude of all of that. Um, but anyway, please go ahead. I just want to make sure oh, we're not yeah. missing that. No, and it really, it's, it is both surprising and not surprising to me when I think about it. Like on the one hand, I think about it and it's like, wow, like that, particularly in hindsight, like, yeah. What was I thinking <laughs> and at the time? It was really like, I just, I felt so strongly that this was just wrong. It was wrong on every level. Mm -hmm. Like it just, and I, I really, like, I believe this may be a bit whoop, but like, I, I was like tapped into like a power and I just, I, I, I was confident we would win people were like, and as we, and we were, we came up with this idea, we got towns, we came up with a strategy of how to get towns to do this, how to then tap into human desire and get more towns to do it once we got the first towns to do it and how to like win the legal battles. But the, um, as, and, and we were, would win them and people would, were shocked. And I'm like, well, didn't you believe me? And they're well, like, well, you were like, like you clearly believed and we believed in you, but we weren't like, we didn't even like, like, no, we're kind of surprised. <laughs> like, oh my God, like I thought you guys, like, we were all in this together and you really got it. And they're like, and we, like, I think people have had lost for so long and, and people lose so many of these battles that when we yes. won, and one and one, it was like people were just amazed that this happened. And, and the final uh, opinion that the Court of Appeals wrote that said, of course we can do this. This is just like saying you can't have a Walmart and you can't like, this is, a, a, this is how this works. And I was like, that's what I've been telling you. And you were like, wow, like that, we're, we're still surprised. Although by the very end, even though we were up against the American Petroleum Institute filing amicus briefs and the US Chamber of Commerce, we did by the end have uh, like multiple, like at least 10, maybe 12 law professors signed on a brief supporting this analysis. When I first went out, talking to law professors and trying to get just so I could tell people like, well, so-and-so agrees with me. 
nobody agreed with me. By the time we'd won the two cases, then we had a whole bunch of law professors <laughs> signing on and saying like, oh yes, of course, this is how the law works. And I'm like, where were you? I, like, I don't know yet that they, they agreed, but I know they agreed. <laughs> so, but it, oh, it's, uh, I think when you, you know, have this sort of like, and it, it's not just even a gut feeling, it's like a gut and a heart feeling. But when you're, when you have that, and I, and I think as women in particular, we're told like, that's not, and I was told I was not a legitimate lawyer. I'm like, what wow. makes me not legitimate? It's like, well, you're sort of like, you're, this is a cause. Like you don't have, like you're going out and finding clients. Like, and we did, like I had the idea and then we found towns to do this. They're like, no, you're supposed to just sit and wait for a town to come up with this idea on their own and then hire you. You're not supposed to have the idea go out, educate the populace, you know, run petitioning drives, push the town into, into passing this kind of law and then helping the town pass the law. That's not how like the legal profession works. That's not a real lawyer. And I was like, well, oh I'm like, that may be true, but I'm a very, I'm a fracking awesome attorney. <laughs> like, I, I may not be a good lawyer in your mind. <laughs> My uh, husband actually had um, hadn't been practicing. He was we he helped me immeasurably with this, but he had not he was not actively practicing in New York. So and he had been not practicing for so long, he couldn't wave in. Which like there's usually reciprocity, and if you're a lawyer admitted in other states, you can get admitted in a in a, a second or third state. But he couldn't do that, so he had to take the bar exam. And so he showed up as like only having in New York that when we first started this as a first year associate, he had like, you know, 25 years of experience, but he only had one year as being admitted to the New York bar. And they'd be like, he's a first year lawyer. And he would say, <laughs> I am the best first year lawyer you are ever going to see. <laughs> But they would grow up and believe what you want, but I know what he's capable. <laughs> and the, uh, but just that, like, I mean, we were attacked on a professional level as like not being like somehow what we were doing wasn't legitimate. And it's like, well, right. Because, because it was never done before. Just doesn't well. mean it's not legit. It's not real. <laughs> and just because you taught outside of the box and you did things unconventional, you still did it all at the, all the checkbox as, as legally correct and properly, right? But we are used yeah. to so much to be done certain way that we don't allow creative way of thinking or strategic thinking or critical thinking to take a place because we're so used to following the suit and not use our own act. So yeah, I talk about how people mistake the construct for reality. So like there is an underlying reality. Yes. How we view that, what we see and how we interpret what we see, so much of it is a con a social construct. I mean, we saw it with the pandemic, like things that we thought could never happen and and just were like reality just didn't like People couldn't just work from home in two weeks. We couldn't just up. If you told a law firm, you're going to have to go fully remote in two weeks and you're not going to be back in the office for 12 months, they would have said, absolutely impossible, cannot be done. We're not even like, no, we need like three years to plan. We need like, all these, <laughs> you know, and it was like exactly. when it happened and they had to do it, they did it. And what they would have said, like the reality was, 
it just, it, well, no, like you didn't want to do it like, or it might've been hard or you wanted to stick in your groove, but if you, yeah, you didn't want to have a change and you were holding everybody else back because your own willingness to explore other options. And that's what often happens because of that. What we do, we still the progress, right. And outcomes. Right. It's like we chop off, like there are all of these, my whole, like, you know, are you creating options? And it's like, well, that's not an option. That's not, and we can't possibly do that. And it's like, well, if you believe it, that's true then we can't do it because if you don't believe you can do it, you'll never do it. So yeah, you're right. And it's like, but it's not true. <laughs> you're right, but it's not true. And definitely that's not the law. <laughs> so, but it, it, uh, you know, I think I just was raised by really powerful and quite frankly, frightening women. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say to the oil and gas, and I'm like, you have no idea who I was raised by. You do not scare me. Like I have been afraid, but <laughs> you do not frighten me. <laughs> but that is so beautiful also to show how human spirit, when we believe, when we listen to our God or higher calling or whatever it is, intuition, intuitively know. But also when we know, when we listen to our moral compass, you could easily deny yourself from that and follow the suit like everybody else did. It's always hard to be that disruptor, that innovator, and bring the different thought process, different solution. And I love when you mentioned not only we have better choices, but I wanted to teach and, and give opportunity for others to see it, right? But also challenge and thinking process. And that is where we're so scared because we see so much Helen group think mentality, don't we? Because it's so easy. And it's so easy to also hire people similar like us and have a 20, 30 guys in middle in the room supporting us and giving as a backing but the reality is what we're backing up easy money easy solution that will just give uh whatever uh rep a reputation to the company or just another great clientele or is this overall where is that moral compass that comes with that where is that challenge where is the spectrum of things that we don't usually go as far to think about it right so i just want to say for everybody again watching and listening this is the legacy leader show why helen is here obviously for everybody watching and listening so far that is how legacies are created she already created a tremendous legacy disrupted status quo she showed what's possible as a result it's now creating great upswing and positive domino effects and there's something not only the current generation is going to be grateful but generations to come and on and that is what i want to also see because a lot of times we think about legacies after somebody passed away or 100 years later, oh my God, his tier or her position was right. We, you know, but what do we do now as we're here at this moment and having these opportunities? So with that in mind, Helen, obviously you did so much already to make your legacy absolutely outstanding. And uh, I'm curious, what is next? What is in your bucket list personally or professionally as a fracking awesome lawyer and as amazing human as you are, where you show up, where you give not only great advice, but support, but also hope for others to look things from different perspective. So what's in the bucket list? What is coming next? And what would you like to be truly remembered for? So, well, those are great questions. And I think legacy is really important. And we often think of, and we build legacy while we're alive. 
you may think of legacy as something that happens after you've died, but it's not like you wait and then you have a legacy. Like you make your legacy every day with the choices that you're making. And, and I think like, especially in these times, you know, we can look back and we can laugh and, and not really understand people who thought the earth was flat. And we can laugh at people who thought that the sun revolved around the earth. And we can laugh at people that thought, you know, I was watching a, a TV show and they were like doing bloodletting or something. And we can laugh and be like, oh, they didn't understand germ theory. What don't we understand today? What foolish actions are we taking and living in that the next generation is going to look back and just be like, what were they thinking? And there are so many things that I look at right now. And I, and I think to myself, like, I, you know, do I want to be the person like, yes, it's comfortable to just go along and get along and not be disruptive and, and, and engage in sort of this group think, like we're hardwired for community and to want to conform and to be part of the group. But when that group thinking is so disconnected from the, the background reality that yes. in dangerous ways, in dangerous, dangerous ways to humanity itself. And so I think that our, that right now we face a crisis of thought and of consciousness and that we're being challenged to evolve, to move from a very, and this is, I think, I think everything's a fractal as well, but very fragmented disconnected thinking where we look at data points and I have this I don't have my props here but I usually have a Rubik's cube um, we and we look at the Rubik's cube from one dimension like from excellent. like the blue side you know or the red side whatever our expertise is and we go to change and we're like well I'd like one of these squares to be orange that would be that would be that would be pretty to me and then it but it, it changes things and then we're like oh that happened out of left field it's like well no like that just happened because you moved the cube, but we look from the one side and we don't see the pieces, but we're in these very fragmented pieces. And we think in that way and we think in cause and effect. And we think in terms of impact, which to me is really force and violence. And instead, I like to think of a sphere and I have a, a, a this Hoberman sphere that I open up and it's the relationships and it's how everything's connected. Or you might think of the difference between an X-ray and an MRI. And right now we have sort of X-ray consciousness. We see the bones and we think we see the connection, but we're missing all the connective tissue. And so we have this, I believe, failure to really, we've gone so far down the scientific rabbit hole and believing in, in these that we, we just don't know. There's so much we don't know. So, and if we operated as if we were part of a network and that we didn't know what we were doing, which is very hard for people, but like, we don't yes. like quantum physics, like we don't. <laughs> and, and so, so to act with some humility and to act as if the, you know, to just, to look at things in this very different way. And so that's, so I, um, and I actually, we talked about, we met on Clubhouse and there's so many rooms that I go into and people have, are pitching and talking about their technological solutions to problem X, climate change, 
clean water, equity, whatever it is. It's like, well, here, we need artificial intelligence or we need this three point plan or we it's like the problem is the thinking. The way you're yeah. thinking about the problem is the yeah. problem. And so you're solving the problem is just as likely to embed it. It's going to be like, it's an invasive, like your problem solving is part of the problem. And I tell this, this the story of the, of the four um, philanthropists from Wayne Dyer. And so the, there's a local village A marauding force comes in, they throw all the men in jail, they, they build a prison. The first philanthropist sells everything, buys water for the people in prison. Second one buys blankets. The third one brings them food. The fourth philanthropist goes in the middle of the night, lets them out of jail. And we are spending all of our time making people comfortable in their prison. And that is not helpful. It's nice, like, and I don't, and I, I don't want people in the world to be starving, and I'm not advocating for that. But there's a difference between making people comfortable in a in a morally wrong and not up, helpful, yes. not designed for their flourishing system. And there's breaking people out of that system, and sometimes plaster. It's like cracks. If we're plastering over the cracks, we're we're keeping ourselves in jail. Yes. And I'm trying to break people out of jail. So that's my legacy. I want to break people out of jail. <laughs> the jail, the prison of thought. I love it because I, I also very often impose and, and I love when you come to um, legacy leaders around tables and in discussion, just the leadership round tables discussions and clubhouse and share always such a beautiful uh, point of view. And I often even post on LinkedIn decision making more than ever. We're solving wrong problems. We're looking at the problems differently. We're identifying the root cause that are totally not related to which situation and we're just reacting to the uh, cause, but we're not looking you know effect i mean we were reacting to effect but not to the correct cause so i use spot on and uh, as a result we are never really going to flourish fully and i love what you just said and i want to use analogy about truly a refugee crisis for example we, we have a huge immigration issues for example uh, around the world not just in the united states right yet we're producing more and more refugees not caused by natural environmental disasters but war and, and conflicts and terrors because we don't don't know how to fix them yet, but we have a pushbacks. We don't want any more refugees. It's like, I'm sorry, that is a re reflection of the situation that we're having. And as you said, we have these interventions and refugee camps and everything else. Instead of do we have a deeper solution to prevent a future need for refugee camps and all these uh, elements that we need to do every year over and over and over again. And that requires different level of leadership, different right. thought leadership, different skill set. Mm -hmm. And as you know, I talked about so many times and you contributed there as well. We already have a deficit in leadership skill set. And, and with, with that right now, it's like you're leading, you're in charge of something huge. What makes you now competent? What makes not the title and you're not your MBA anymore, whatever degree might be, but what, what evidence of what did you able to solve thus far? and how to navigate these complexities and how we can lead into future, right? So I love your mission and your desire, but I also just wanted to say thank you for raising the bar. Thank you for breaking the ceiling and thank you for diminishing and giving better, clearer view of what we're really talking about and what we need to focus on.
So no, and I, what you're, again, just to close where we opened, which is to thank you. These are, I think of the, the deficits in leadership are in, in narrative and we don't have a story for how to change the system. We have a story, the hero's journey that tells us how to operate within the system and to, and to sort of make some piece of the system better. But we don't have stories about how to reweave relationships, how to look at this larger web, how to, how to not be the singular hero. And we keep waiting. I, I would tell people like, there's nobody coming to save us. There is no cavalry. There is no one, there is you. There is you, that's it. Like you are the leader here. Don't, you need to be the leader in your town. Like you find two or three other people that's all you need is a core group of people. You are it. There's no one is saving us, like <laughs> no one. And so, but these, these stories about how do you change? How do you, how do you lead? How, and, and there is this, like once people see something, and this is part of why I share my story. When people can see that something totally outside of the box is possible, everything was aligned against us in the fracking fight. There was no way to win that fight. If we had to go get a foundation grant and show how we were gonna get from A to B, never. Like it, there was no pathway, there was no, everything was like this whole idea, what, get, where do we get our options? Where do we get leverage? How do we do this? And showing people that and the conversations that you're hosting and the leadership roundtables of giving people this permission to to think outside the box and to and to dream big and to connect with their passions and to act from this place of passion and not from this place of well the spreadsheet told me so and it's that's what we we need this empowerment we need to to hear each other and and resonate with one another and and find this collective will to to demand better there, there is better out there. And, and, but we get lulled, you know, it's sort of like you, you, you get lulled to sleep and you just sort of like, well, you know, and, and that's this whole legacy thing. Like it is your legacy that you were conformed or is your legacy that you tried to do something different? Yes. Yes. Love it. Love it. I love it. I know we can go for a lap forever and I'm looking forward to have you back uh, in the studio and having conversation with us, Helen. Just want to say, first of all, thank you for your time and for the phenomenal share and great learning lessons and empowerment for everybody that is listening around the world. But in the same time, I just want to say what is coming next before we close. Just want to hear for our audience where they can find you, where they can get in touch with you, because I'm sure this will also bring a lot of curiosity and desire to have a future conversation with you as well, possibly also opportunities to work with you because so many systems are crumbling and looking for alternative and you are brilliant mind that can bring that to the table. So yeah, so finding me on LinkedIn and connecting there is a great way to, to find me. I'm happy, I, I really enjoy talking about this and sharing this with people. 
and Clubhouse has been just terrific. And uh, if you can't figure out how to spell slotche, my handle is quantum law. So <laughs> that's the, I think we're, you know, it's the difference between Newtonian and, and operating at the quantum level. So, so on Clubhouse and LinkedIn are, are great ways to find me. And I'm, I really am, am passionate about everything we've talked about here and would just love to talk with people and, and figure out how, how we collectively create a legacy that we're proud of and one and one that there are people around to, to care about. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I was very much, a, if I could have a legacy, that would be great. <laughs> you already have and, and yours is blasphemy and it's yet to be unfold because this is just beginning. So thank you again. Oh, thank um, you so much. And what you're doing is just, I, I would highly recommend people, you know, finding and working with you and, and talking with you. It, it, this is so vital. Thank you. Thank you, Helen, again, and enjoy your vacation. Thank you for giving your time and we look forward to further conversations. All right. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Legacy Leader Show. If you enjoyed the content and had a positive experience, then please leave us a positive rating. In addition, Leave us positive review whenever you are listening on whatever platform there might be. Make sure your friends and family also know about the benefit and value that we provide and what we have to offer. Cheers.